Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. Big stack of books in the back there. Are you reading? Is that like... I uh, cleaned off my bedside table because I had a bunch of books that I had either half finished or had already finished. And I just brought them down here. I just relocated the mess as, as we do when we design things. I just moved the junk from one place to another. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Throw complexity over the, over the cubicle wall. That's, yep. that's, the, that's the ideal way to deal with complexity. Okay. <laughs> How many of those books that you never finished reading are mine? Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to hurt your feelings, Russ. So let's just pass on that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's okay. I don't care. <laughs> you bought them, so that gave me like maybe a quarter of towards a cup of coffee or something. So whatever. <laughs> 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 and today we are joined by Yvonne. And it's not even a round table. I don't know. We are privileged. Uh-oh. You're you're not you're not you're not you're not you're muted or something. Uh oh. You still at- uh, my mic is okay. Seriously, you can't hear me. You're good now. now. Can... You're good now. Okay. You were you were All quiet right. before, but that's good. Right. Yeah. So well. Yvonne is here. Yeah. It's amazing. Good afternoon. good afternoon. For some of us, anyway, I guess. Might as well. I don't know be. what time it is. Your other alternative is for it to be bad afternoon, and we none want that. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. Depends. And today we have Federico Lucifredi. Lucifredi. I don't know how to say that last name, Federico. Lucifredi. Lucia Freddy. I just, the C's just baffle me. I can't, I can't help it. <laughs> yeah, there is, there is no cheese sound in English. So, okay. That's right. That's right. There's no letter that represents it. You can do it with multiple letters, but not a single letter. So you've got to guess right. at it sometimes. Right. So, Federico, where are you? I'm in, still in Boston. In Boston. Not, okay. So, we'd actually, unlike you. Okay. So it's actually still afternoon for all three of us. So Yvonne can say that correctly. Sometimes it's a morning for someone else. Yvonne, mm. You know, you'd be a little careful. So today we are talking about retro computing, which is an interesting idea. A lot of people don't really pay much attention to the past, the computing past. Me, I have a Galaga machine sitting in my room in there. <laughs> nice. Because my wife loves Mrs. Pac-Man and Galaga. So we bought her a machine for Christmas. So if you hear the little Galaga theme going back there, you know what it is. It's, it's back there. I know that one by heart. <laughs> <laughs> of course, this isn't a retro machine. Those are way too expensive to buy a real machine. Um, these are, you know, Atari's running on ROMs, but it's on a but it's on a full stand and everything. So I guess, Federico, what started you down this path? I mean, why did you start collecting old computer gear? Well, um, in part, it's um, that by training, I uh, was an embedded engineer. So I, I like tinkering with things that are borderline computers that are nearly impossible to get working. I, li- I like the challenge. And uh, practically, what happened was, uh, well, during the pandemic, I needed some project to uh, keep my hands and my mind busy. So I started uh, recovering old machines, some of which I had used before, so I was familiar with. And then I 
moved into increasingly more exotic stuff that I that I never used before for the the challenge of of it and for learning how how these alternative systems work. And um, apparently, I was not the only one because um, the prices for old hardware have skyrocketed in the last three years. It used to be that people are just happy to give you their old Mac, um, unless it was a collector's machine, like the first Macintosh or stuff like that. They weren't that expensive. But now, uh, literally junk is listed on eBay for for considerable prices. So evidently, there there is more than me doing it. Well, I'd also think it's a rarity thing. You know, people buy these things, gut them and and destroy them or do whatever, don't understand what they're doing and mess them up unintentionally or mess them up intentionally. I've seen numbers That's of people right. who take old or old Atari physical boxes and replace them with gaming board, you know, gaming PCs and try to make them look like old Ataris by modifying the case and stuff like that. So there were only so many of these things made and a lot of them are in you know, graveyards and dumps and stuff like that. And the Mm. ones that remain aren't that many. So lots of people are starting to realize, you know, this is history and we ought to hang on to it. So, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know where you want to start. There's two, two different things you have here, a Max Lissy server and a, an Atari thread. Um, I don't know which one you want to kick off first or which one you want to talk about first. Um, Well, I'd say, Let's go. Let's go in order. Here's what I found. Oops. Oops. Siri <laughs> wants to join our roundtable. <laughs> yeah, let's say let's go in order. So, um, one of the earliest things that I started doing was looking at old PCs. I I grew up on a PC, so it was sort of an easy target for me, right? So I I started with those. I saw this uh, um, portable PS2 that had. Um, glowing red display and it was in perfect condition so I, I started working on that and it was mostly just an operating system issue of rebuilding the os image and installing some software on it that would work but so there was what software no... what soft what operating system was it running it wasn't running os2 right it was running no. something <laughs> It was, it was a 386 running... sx25 i believe or maybe okay. even 16 and um it was running, uh, now it's running uh, DOS 3.2. Okay. Uh, and that's Microsoft DOS, not Digital Research, right? Because Digital Research right. had CPM and DOS. And then... Yeah, it's actually running IBM DOS 3.2, which, oh, is, okay. which is Microsoft DOS. Yeah. Uh, okay. OEM. From the days when Microsoft and IBM were partners. Right. Before right. they got <laughs> mad at each other and stopped talking. Mm. <laughs> Yes. Also, as an IBMer, I must say that now we talk to we talk to Microsoft again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was all about OS two and server, right? That's what the whole right. breakup was over. Was over the server was over the server operating system, and Microsoft wanted to go one direction, and then IBM wanted to go a different direction. But they actually kind of shared their code base, which was kind of weird. But at the time, it was kind of normal and then they got in a big argument about the direction to go i mean yeah i'm that old i remember that okay so i was there i remember that too that was (laughs) early 90s yeah yeah that's was an interesting decade for operating systems yes it was back then vines was still considered vines and netware netware was considered the, the the operating system 
And Vines was considered a serious contender because of street talk. And then, you know, things kind of went sideways from there. (laughs) (laughs) So what's your process for for finding this gear? Are you just like trolling eBay or looking on Craigslist or are there particular things that you're looking for? Or do you just kind of keep an eye out for stuff that looks interesting to you and then then run with it? A little bit of both. So I... Uh, I follow a certain number of sellers on eBay that I know uh, sell computers that work. Like they, they won't sell something that's majorly broken. And I kind of keep an eye on what it is that they find. There are some things that I, I wouldn't come up with. Like, for example, the other day I was looking at a grid laptop. This was, I think, the first PC taken on the space shuttle, not the actual unit, but the model. And... Um, I believe it was a 286 or a 386 laptop. I can't remember anymore. And uh, I knew that this existed, but it, it wasn't in the list of things that I wanted to collect. I just ran into it and I thought, oh, this is interesting. Then ultimately I decided to pass because it was very expensive. It was maybe four or $500. But, um, uh, but then it's, it's a little bit of a discovery thing. So there are sellers on eBay that, uh, that I follow because they're good sources. And actually, the, um, the category system on eBay works in this case. The vintage hardware is a good way to bring it up. And then the other thing is um, uh, there is uh, here in Boston, MIT has a flea market, which is mostly ham radio stuff and the computer stuff. And could be other techie stuff, but it's dominated by computer stuff. So um, now I have um, a little one. And um, I like to take, take walks with my daughter through the through the flea market, and we we explore and see what um, what uh, is there. And she has excellent taste. She she actually wanted that grid laptop. I was like, mm, maybe <laughs> maybe we'll save that for for the college fund. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, boy, I remember flea markets. I know they still exist, but not, there used to be a big one here in North right around the corner from me in North Carolina. And uh, I think it was or South Carolina. Anyway, whatever. And, you know, I'm an amateur radio operator. So I grew mm-hmm. up in the ham radio world. And so, yeah, you know, we went to flea markets all the time. And it was really cool going through and finding old rigs and new rigs and bits and pieces that you needed to fix an old rig that you had. I had a 40 meter tube type rig and I had to go find tubes for it all the time. They weren't commercially available. You had to go to the flea market and dig them out and run them through the tester. So, yeah. So, so do you find when you find them, um, when you find these things, you say that they're mostly working. Do you end up doing, I was just looking at the pictures. It looks like there's a pretty extensive teardown you're doing. Do you find that they, they are partially broken that you need to fix some things? So you can, you can find things in any, in any sort of state. Um, I tend to select things that are, uh, in good aesthetic condition because I, I want to finish the result to to look good, and then I repair whatever may be necessary from the point of view of the electronics. Or usually there are missing components, like maybe the system doesn't have any RAM or things like that. Um, for the PCs, because that's where my experience came from, it's it's very natural and to me. And I mean, I horrible flashbacks about things like the DOS menu system for configuring what what um, 
assist the bus drivers to load and whatnot, so that you can keep the base memory free as much as possible and things like that. But it's stuff that I did before, and so I kind of know where to poke. And the biggest challenge there is that there isn't so much on the internet, so you have to Google for a while before you find the manual with with the right syntax or the right uh, the right help, and then. Typically, I, at this point, I have a predefined setup with uh, with um, with uh, DOS floppies, where it comes up and it has a, a set of different configuration pre-configured options, where it has uh, CD support or no CD support, zip drive support or no zip drive support, a few things like that, so that you keep the base memory uh, maxed out, and um, and then I, from there, I developed this thing where uh, I used to have a zip drive when I was uh, in high school, and um, uh, um, I learned that they made a version where the zip drive, these cartridges, there are 100 megabytes and look like slightly fat floppy drive for those that are not familiar. Yeah. Um, turns out that at the turn of the millennium, they made a version that was both parallel and SCSI, which I didn't know about, uh, using the fact that DB25 is... SCSI on Mac and um, NDB25 is parallel on PC. And originally those were two different models, but um, in around 2000, apparently made a single auto-detecting version. So I I found one of those and then I, I went on Amazon and bought uh, a microphone case that fits exactly that size. And I basically made the this retrocomputing backup kit where there are two zip drives in there. One is this dual mode one, and then the other one is a USB mode one and contains all the cables and all that and adapters so that I can plug this into pretty much any device. Because the, the thing with these projects is that you spend quite a bit of time making them work, right? That's uh, the fun is the, the challenge of the repair and getting them to work once, once they work, the, the fun is over. I mean, maybe, maybe you can play a video game of the age to to enjoy it for a little bit, but uh, the challenge is over. You go to the next project. So once you invested so much time, it's um, at least from my point of view, you want to save the result of this work because um, I have my notebook where I say, "Well, I use this option and I solve this problem this way," but I never want to do it again. Right? It's fun the first time. The second time, it's absolutely ridiculous. So um, <laughs> the zip drive lets me back up these systems because they're old and they're prone to failure, right? The hard drives, uh, especially on the old Macs that at this point are more than 30 years old, can fail at any moment. So mm. people replace them with mm, SCSI adapters that support SD cards, the way to make them more resilient. But often I use our hard drives. So they can fail. So I wanted this universal backup kit, basically. And, uh, and it worked very nicely. And the other reason is, even with DOS machines, uh, there, is no, um, there is no disk support format anymore. I'm sorry, there is no disk format support anymore. Um, I keep this uh, Mac that, uh, let me see, it's... Um, not Tiger, it's um well, so you heard your it's not does say Tiger 10.5 is what you were using or something like that. It's 10.6. 10.6, okay. So which I don't snow 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 leopard, I think it's called. Right. Snow leopard. So the oldest machine that I 
keep in regular use is Snow Leopard. And um, that one can read and write USB floppy drives. So I have a USB floppy that I plug in, and then I can download software from the internet, expand it on the floppy in a way that the, the retro machine will accept. It turns out that there are all sorts of complications there as well, because write support for old operating systems has been progressively removed from modern OSs. So for, uh, let me see, for DOS, it's all right. And the problems tend to be on the hardware. So the USB floppy may or may not support 720K floppies. The iOmega external floppy does. The uh, very common Lenovo external floppy only does 144. So that's, that's a stumbling place for, for example, for the Atari project that, uh, that I have going on right now. But um, the software can write the, the, the formats or write if you find the hardware. But for old Mac floppies, there are these HFS, HFS plus um, disk formats uh, that were removed after, after Mac OS Tiger. So you can read the floppies, but you cannot write them. So you have to go through a bunch of twists and turns to get the software in there. And some of these machines are so old that they don't really have proper encryption support. So you cannot really uh, download from a website that has TLS or right. uh, SSH somewhere to download the file. So there are, now there are these new projects where people write SSH clients for these old machines so that you can import the software that way. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit they, of a challenge on getting the bits in there. Do you think that they did that because of security, that they started getting rid of these hardware support? Because it doesn't seem, well, I guess it, it takes extra heads or something, right? To write old disk or to read from old disk, like you have to have multiple mecha- mechanisms in there. I just I wonder think, why um, they would. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not privy to what the logic for Apple was. I mean, at the point when Apple removed this from 10.5, uh, 10.5 was like 2008. So Apple had been shipping a floppy disk for like 10 years at that point. Um, so I think it was just, uh, well, let's remove old craft that we're no longer using. For Linux, I remember there were articles when, uh, when Linus uh, deprecated the floppy disk drive. Uh, because it was um, it was probably one of the foundational pieces of Linux. It must have been there right at the beginning. And that was more recent. And uh, for Linux, the logic is, is very obvious. It's, uh, there is no maintainer. When there is no maintainer, either you find a new maintainer or you remove the code. And for the floppy drive, I guess that was the logical choice. It, mm-hmm. it creates some interesting questions. I know that I read a... Um an article a while back about archivists and how they're, they're trying to think through how to solve, like how much of our communication now happens digitally and email, for example, where, you know, a hundred years ago, people sent letters back and forth. And we know a lot of history because we have the physical copies of letters and those don't really exist today. And it, it's interesting to think through like the, the forensic challenges that we have with, uh, with all, you know, how many of us have old CD ROMs in a box somewhere or floppy disks in a box somewhere that we no longer have a mechanism to, to access. And so it's, it's interesting to think yes. about 
um, th- those challenges going forward and what a, what a specialized challenge that is. And also, like, what does it mean? You know, like <laughs> my, uh, my mom has a, a cabinet with physical pictures in it, right? We don't, we don't have those anymore. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so it, it's, it's interesting that there's like, frames. yeah, yeah. There's like an entire discipline around maintaining all these, you know, what we, historic devices that, uh, that have, that are not in our popular world anymore. And it's, and the lifespan on them is so very short, you right. know, 20, 30 years isn't, isn't long, you know, we, we need, no. yeah. <laughs> in the timeline of history. So it's really fascinating to think through all the unique challenges that we have from a, from a, you know, um, I can't think of the word, but, uh, but to well, keep track of the history. Media access, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Preserving. Preserving I, I actually ran into that, I think it was 2021 or 2020. Um, after I spoke at DEF CON, someone sent me a, an audio tape as a thank you for, for my talk. And uh, the, the audio tape, I couldn't play it. I, I'm pretty good with having old uh, format players around the house. I think I don't have a VHS player. I tried to get rid of as many of those as possible because of the, um, the space that they can take. But for everything else that's digital, I pretty much can access it. Um, so I was like, oh, cool. This must sound nice, but where the heck do I play it? And um, I actually had to go on Amazon and order a cassette player. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there was a cassette player that was USB enabled, which was pretty cool. Came came from China and it was like fifteen dollars, so no problem. And I could I could listen to the mixtape, but otherwise hang, it was. Uh, hang on, hang on. So this just sounds like an awesome combination: a cassette player from China with USB. You're going to play something you got at DefCon. Yes. Please tell me you didn't plug this into your computer. <laughs> no, this was this was mostly analog. The only digital part was the was the Bluetooth. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Because you never know what's going to be in that tape player from China with a right. USB port on it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. But uh, but yeah. More seriously, on the um, media archival side, I. I follow Jason Scott at the Internet Archive, and he has all sorts of challenges like these. When they're archiving something, how do they read an obsolete format or another? And sometimes you see him doing the digitizing, or sometimes you see somebody working with him trying to um, discover how to deal with a dead format. And it's it's interesting. Um, And there is definitely more and more of that. Uh, I think the one that comes to mind was uh, maybe around 2012, I don't remember anymore. The Air Force retired their previous classified missile uh, authorization launch system, strategic missile um, authorization launch system. And it was, uh, I think it was single-sided eight-inch floppies. And um, basically they were saying it works just fine, but we cannot maintain it anymore. It's uh, It's impossible to deal with this old tech. It's impossible to find parts or, or floppies and it, it was safe in a you know special way because nobody could deal with it but it was just too much and i don't know what they replaced it with it's uh, that part is still classified but they, they declassified the old system i think that there is one at the nsa museum in dc now 
So that is the alternate meaning of security by obscurity. Yes. Use, use outdated soft hardware nobody else could read. It's it's security through obsolescence is what it is. Yes. <laughs> More in the public sphere, you sometimes see it with the uh, NASA old uh, old probes. Um, like they're trying to read archival tapes of uh, of data from the 70s and they need to recover both the the player to read it and an understanding of the format that it's recorded in and these are these are 70s systems they they don't have much of an abstraction you're you're reading the bits of the of the media and uh, one that was interesting there was recently one of the I can't remember if it was in the Discover or in the Pioneer series, but 1960s satellite that was uh, launched to study, I believe, solar radiation. It, it was, I believe, it was uh, migrating along the Earth's orbit. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't orbiting the Earth. It was on. It was co-orbital with the Earth, and basically, it moved around the Earth's orbit and caught up with us again from the other side. And as it was coming by, uh, a bunch of amateurs wanted to reestablish connection because these are solar-powered probes, so they may just be working. NASA gave them the access codes and everything that they needed and the old hardware. And there was this project maybe five, six years ago to reacquire connection with the satellite, which ultimately was successful. I don't okay. think that they managed to do anything useful with it, but just uh, the retrocomputing challenge was daunting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, from a cultural perspective, I think it's interesting, too, that we have all this old stuff that we can no longer read. Um, you know, you read dystopian novels, and a lot of what they try to do is to eliminate the past. And it seems like with obsolescence, yes. we've done a very good job of eliminating the past, whether it's intentional or not. That's kind of what we're doing, right? I mean, I don't know that I could go back and recover anything that I wrote on my Coco 2. When I was writing code on the Coco 2, I don't think it, there's anything that you could do it with it any longer. Mm. I, you know, I don't think there are Coco 2s out there for sale that I could actually, if I could even had the software medium that I could mess with. And so, yeah, I mean, that's very, and all the assembly language stuff I did back on the 8088s, yeah, that's all toast too. Like, there's nothing that'll run that today. <laughs> <laughs> it's true that the, the obsolescence to a new model kind of gets rid of the old. But to me, it's also surprising how long a lot of this stuff lasts. Like uh, right now, I'm actually uh, talking to you through a 14-year-old Mac. Hmm. And um, Apple gets bad, uh, bad uh, rep for planned obsolescence from people that like to bash them. But the fact is that Apple hardware lasts longer than anybody else's. Um, and in fact, it, it often runs against the limits of their ability to support the operating system. Um, and this is only on the 10-year range. On the, the stuff from the 90s, most, um, most of the stuff that I work with, and admittedly, I try to pick things that are in good condition. I, I don't get computers that were in a barn or in some adverse um, <laughs> weather space, but um, something that was in a house for 30 years. They're, they're in pretty good shape. The, the capacitors made the grade. Sometimes you have to replace the capacitors. I thought it would be a lot more often than, than I had to. Um, so far, the only machine I had to replace capacitors on was a 1980s Macintosh. 
And it's actually borderline whether that was necessary or not. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that always happens is that the CMOS batteries need to be removed. So mm -hmm. um, they're getting so old that um, the CMOS batteries are these um, very low voltage, I'm sorry, no, very low current. Uh, I think the voltage is maybe 3.8 volts, but, um, but the amount of uh, energy that they can provide is severely limited. However, they are designed to last for 30 years so that uh, the CMOS settings will last, uh, will not be lost. And after 20 years or so, those can leak and basically destroy the board. So the first part of a recovery project is um, is uh, finding where these batteries are and replacing them with a new one. Some people just remove them and live without that battery because it's easier to just store the machine and forget about it. I kind of think that if I'm going to keep the machine, I will use it once in 10 years. So I'm okay with storing it with, with a new battery. So the, when I do open the machine and inspect it and clean it and do all these things, I'm always going in there and desoldering the old battery and replacing it with a new one. Sometimes it's easy. They're mm, fairly simple batteries that look like AA batteries or the like. And um, there are these jokes online. They, they tend to be made by Varta. So you see pictures of, of 300 where they say, this is Sparta, where instead they say, this is Varta. <laughs> Complaints about the fact that the Varta is always messing up your motherboard kind of thing. And so you, those are easily replaced. Um, sometimes you find really uh, interesting things. Like I found one that had West Germany written on it. Really? Pre, uh, Berlin wall. Ah. Uh, that was in the 386 desktop that, that I worked on after the laptop. And others have very exotic batteries. Like, um, I can't remember what machine it was, but uh, it had a rice cooker battery on it that I had to order from Taiwan. But in, ultimately, you can find these things. It's just a matter of feeling a little bit funny about ordering a, a $5 battery for 30 bucks when you have to get it from the other part shipping, of the planet. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, shipping is always. So a couple of things I noticed about these things is, as I'm looking at the pictures of them torn down is, first of all, they, they all appear fairly easy to work on compared to modern computers. Modern computers yes. are board level only. You would never be soldering, you know, a hundred years from now, nobody's going to be soldering capacitors onto NVIDIA graphics cards. Like that's just not going to happen. <laughs> yes. they're, they're just not designed to be done that with that way. So did you, do you find this stuff is easier to work on than modern stuff? Like, because it's kind of seems like to be designed to be worked on more than modern stuff <laughs> is. I think um, it is absolutely easier to work on. The 90s stuff is still within range of things that you can mess with. Like you can, replace discrete capacitors, make certain repairs. The 80s stuff actually needs to be worked on. And in some cases, the boards are maybe two, three layers. The PCs are, are multi-layer boards already in the 90s, but you look at something like an Amiga or an Atari, Atari notoriously uh, low-cost systems, you find all sorts of things that are uh, more similar to older analog TVs than digital systems. And <laughs> you can definitely work on quite a bit. 
Yeah, well, I mean, they used to use much flow. I mean, nowadays people use 32-layer boards, 16 and 32-layer boards. And so you really can't. There's not a lot you can do with a 32-layer board. Well, and also there are surface-mounted components. You have, yeah. you need a microscope. Yeah. You need a very steady hand. And yeah. there are grains of sand. quite often. Yeah, to... float soldered and stuff like that. And you can't really do a whole lot with it. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I noticed when I was looking through these is there's a lot of space in these systems. There is like there's a lot of just open air. There is this uh, the system that I'm working on right now that's uh, proving to be the biggest challenge so far, uh, which is an Atari laptop called the Stacy, uh, and that's uh, it's Stacy for ST. It's basically a portable Atari ST. So um, it is a nice system actually. And it's about the size of a typewriter for those that know what that means. <laughs> and uh, I had to open it to do the usual ritual with the batteries. And first of all, it's a laptop with two mezzanine cards, which um, you wouldn't imagine that even in, in 90s PCs, but yeah, it has many layers. And then about half of it is empty and there is a lot of air in there and uh, people like to to make mods and projects in, in there because the, the outside case, case is actually pretty good looking. And, um, and you have all of this wealth of space to, to put your components in. It's uh, proving a little bit of a challenge because I never used an Atari before, so I have no basic expertise. And Atari systems are pretty pushed to the limit uh, to be affordable compared to contemporary PCs and Macs uh, on the 32-bit range. So it was Atari ST was, uh, as I understand it, the affordable way to get a 32-bit system compared to the other two. And you can sort of see how many corners were cut. And so the, the challenges are, at least I find them interesting as an embedded developer, because when you're doing these things as an embedded developer, you don't know if there is a solution. You think there is, uh, you think you have seen this before, but you don't know for sure. When you're trying to recover these old systems, you know that there is a solution. Somebody made this thing work before. You just need to find it. So it's, it's like a puzzle, but you know that, that there will be something at the end of the tunnel. And with, with the uh, Stacy, it's fascinating. Like, um, it has a graphical system that's based on GEM, Digital Research GEM, which was available on PCs in the 80s as an early competitor pre-Windows. But it's not full GEM. It's a stripped-down version. You do things that are alien to the graphical interaction that we have today, like the way you create a drive is that you select the icon of an old drive, you go into the menu and say install drive, and that will create a copy of the old drive. And then you modify the, uh, the settings for that. But you know, copying a hard drive to create a, an amount point effectively for a zip drive is not the way my mind works. <laughs> but it is, that is very much the way the interaction is. Or um, in DOS, you used to set up autoexec uh, batch file and config sys mm -hmm. as the way to configure the system. In Atari ST, it turns out that you set up everything the way you want it on the, on the graphical interface, and then you say, save desktop, and that will save the configuration into a binary file. 
And uh, when you do that enough times, you will eventually manage to corrupt that file, maybe because the hard drive heads didn't park by the time you shut down or because who knows. And so it's very interesting to recover an STACY when the desktop file is corrupted because it goes into a boot loop. It starts, looks like everything is done booting, reboot, and keeps going. 50, uh, by the way, uh, the STACY has operating system in ROM, so it boots really fast. Boots in like three, four <laughs> seconds, which is really nice. But uh, it's really strange when you have these reboot loops. And early versions of the Atari TOS, the V operating system, apparently it's what it stood for. So the joke is that it was Tramel operating system for the founder. The early versions of TOS that are on the STACY, and as I said, they are in ROM, so that's what you get, don't have a clear way to bypass this, uh, this boot sequence. There are some combinations of control, shift, uh, alt that you can press uh, that exist in version two of the OS. Version one, all that you can do is bypass the loading of the hard disk drive or don't bypass the loading of the hard disk drive. So when you're doing that, it's a little bit bad because you can bypass, the machine will boot okay, but then you cannot access the file that you're trying to fix. <laughs> and um, and you cannot access the hardest driver either because it's on the hard drive. <laughs> so you, you go back to that scenario that I was describing before where you do very strange things to get just a few bytes on a floppy disk. You get the hardest drive on a floppy disk, which for the, the Stacy must be a single-sided 720 floppy, which um, is also not easy to manipulate from Mac or PC these days. You get the driver in there. And, um, and then you load the driver that will not start the desktop configuration. So then you can go and clobber the desktop configuration and start from scratch. Wow. That's like crazy. It, it's, it's a very interesting puzzle. And I find it very relaxing because uh, I'm used to these things from embedded in, in development. And I spend my life in meetings work-wise. And I find that I cannot... It, the, the ideal thing would be to be able to double task, right? Read your email during the, during the meeting, get the email done while you're listening to people drawn on. But um, <laughs> I'm actually notorious for ignoring meetings that I don't think are useful. So it, I'm in meetings where I need to listen and I need to speak. So I cannot uh, ignore these people and, and read email while I'm doing that. So I, and my brain processor is limited to one language thread at a time. So I can't read them <laughs> and listen at the same time. But I figured that I can do things with my hands. So if I'm, if I'm soldering something, that's totally okay. I can still follow what you're saying about this bug or that architecture. And uh, so, I don't know, sometimes I'm out in the garden planting plants while people are talking to me, or sometimes I'm repairing boards and, you know, it's Boston, so you cannot be in the garden all the time. In the winter, it's nice to have something like this to do well. Um, well, the soul-crushing bureaucracy um, <laughs> is, <laughs> is taking your daytime. <laughs> wow. Well, we, we, we all have our coping mechanisms for the soul-crushing bureaucracy. <laughs> yes, exactly. yes, we do. Yes, we do. That's really cool. So the Atari is your current. The Stacy is your current. 
project, right? That's what you're currently working. I usually have multiple ones going in parallel because it takes time to source parts. So uh, the the Stacy has been the one that I spent the most time lately. Usually, I try to spend one or two hours on Tuesdays as a relaxing ritual. After Tuesday is the hardest work of the week for for my schedule, and uh, so. You make a little bit of progress, then you figure out what part you need next or what question will you need to ask the three people that still are around providing answers for Stacy, so that you can do the next week's cycle. And so the result is that sometimes it takes weeks to get these things. And so the, the projects are in parallel. The Stacy is the primary. I'm almost done restoring an Amiga 1200. And uh, there, I think I'm all done. I... I did what I did with uh, the second PC, which is trying to max out all the accessories that you can put in it. Like if you if you look at the Twitter stuff that I gave you, and the 386 pizza box format, I got it because it, I thought, oh, this looks like a Sunwork station, but it's a PC. How cute! And it was a 386 SX, unfortunately, but still faster than um, than what I had that I'm comparing with in this case. I, I had an 8086 at the time when this machine was made. And so I, I knew exactly how to max it out. So I put the best VGA card of the year. I put the right sound card to have compatibility with all the menagerie of sound cards that 1989, 1992 PC video games uh, offered, like ADLib, the first version of Sound Blaster. Game Blaster and stuff like that. I, I modified the Sound Blaster to support the Game Blaster standard and so on. So all of the games of that era can work with sound, which makes a very significant difference uh, on the system. And so I added every single thing that I could add. And then I, I usually put a note card inside the system with all the specs and all the modifications so that I will know what the reference is. And... Um, and essentially, I went and did the same thing with the Amiga Auto. I did not have an Amiga, so that was more of a learning experience. Where can I put storage? How much RAM can the system take? And um, most of the stuff that's left to do on the Amiga is me learning how to move software from floppies to, to uh, persistent storage. Because on the Atari or on the Amiga, many of these systems, many of these games were expected to load from floppy, right? So they're not expecting to be on permanent storage. And so sometimes it's possible, sometimes it's not possible, and you have to figure out how. And, um, and then there is the next phase, which is hardware made today for these old systems, mostly to make your life easier as a recovery or restore. <laughs> Uh, for the Stacy, I got this USB to parallel thing that is effectively meant to be a modern lap length cable so, so that you can move data using the parallel port. It is compatible with PC, Mac, and all sorts of things. So I plan to use it in the future. But I, I got this primarily for the, uh, for the ST to begin with because right now I'm firing up a Windows 90s terminal on a a Windows 7 machine, and then sending software over at 9600 baud over a serial, <laughs> over a serial link. And then I have a client on, wow. the, on the Atari side that dumps it to disk. It, aside from the fact that it's twisted and complicated, it's slow. <laughs> it, it takes uh, a good minute to transfer just um, 300 kilobytes. So um, this, is a, this is a nice thing. 
And other type of new modern hardware is uh, people make all sorts of new storage options to replace floppy drives that um, are, are going unreliable. They replace them with floppy drive interface on the outside, USB port on the, out, uh, on the outside, so that you can just plug in a USB device or, or an SD card and use that to load software. Um, on the Amiga, it's exactly like that. There is something for the external Amiga hard disk port that will take an SD card. And um, this needs to be configured correctly. But uh, so far, I managed to get it to load Monkey Island. So it, it seems like we're getting <laughs> close. Wow. So that's really cool. So any plans to me plan to keep on doing this forever? Or is like there a point where you're going to say, okay, I have this museum built and now I'm going to do something with it? Or how does that work? I think um, I tend to finish a system when it's not as challenging as the the Atari, I tend to finish a system every couple of months. So the, the pace is not very fast. And um, it's also a good coping mechanism, as you were saying earlier. So I, for now, I plan to continue doing it. We'll see. At some point, there is going to be too much redundancy, right? You don't want to have three PCs that do the same thing. Yeah. But I still have plenty of ideas. Like there is this power book from the 90s that I found that will support an early 802.11 card. I want to get uh, NetBSD on it and basically have a portable NetBSD thing on 68K processors. This, this will be mostly a, a software challenge. There, there shouldn't be anything. Uh, well, maybe I haven't looked at the inside of the laptop yet. There may be some physical restoration. Cool. So this is a really cool hobby. I mean, if people wanted to get started in it, could you give them recommendations? Just troll around eBay, find, I don't know, uh, flea markets or whatever, or are there discords or slacks or something? Finding something that uh, maybe that you are familiar with. Um, like um, if you've reached a certain age, if you go back to the PC that you had in childhood or the Amiga that you had in childhood, that could be an, an easier way to start, right? You, I find this kind of twisted challenge compelling as, as somebody that uh, that was trained as an embedded engineer. Most other people just go, oh, forget it. It's just too much time, too much craziness. So you, you want to lower the curve a little bit. If you make the software side something that you're familiar with, you will, you will be more motivated. The other thing is, and there are quite a bit of uh, things under the retro computing tag in Twitter, and I suppose some of that migrated to Mastodon. So um, it's possible to find what other people are doing. And um, it's increasingly crazy because um, a lot of people have restored enough systems or after a couple of systems decide that they have enough of restoring old systems and they start creating new things. Like um, a few days ago, I was looking at someone that made a CCD, uh, made a digital camera for, for Game Boy. And <laughs> it's... Um, it's new custom hardware, but the PCs, uh, the computer side is a, a Game Boy, and it, I believe it shot, uh, shoots pictures at uh, 160 by 160 pixels or something like that. It's very grainy, but uh, essentially people are progressively switching to building new things on old hardware, and that seems to be the next thing. So there, are, maybe most people don't have the skill or the time to do that, but it's 
it's exciting to see to watch others do the and these uh, pull off these crazy stunts. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I think that pretty much covers it for me. I don't know if you have anything else, Yvonne, that you want to ask or. No, I just think it's it's fascinating to to think about not just the implications of it, but you know all all the how it connects with history and geopolitics and um, all of those interlapping disciplines. So uh, it's it's fascinating, really interesting. So yeah. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Yeah, Federico. So, um, how can yeah how how can people get in touch with you if they want to or if they want to follow you on this or anything else? Do you have a blog or anything like that? Uh, yeah. So, um, uh, my blog is on Subtol uh, f two dot Subtol written with a V, Richard Coleman style dot uh, <laughs> com, and. Um, the retro computing stuff I post all on Twitter. So my handle there is uh, 0xf2, like the hexadecimal f2. Okay. And um, I try to post lots of pictures as I go through these systems. So you can vicariously look at the restoration of an old system. Well, that's really cool. So, Yvonne, where can people get in touch with you or follow you if they want to? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Sharp Network or just uh, look me up on LinkedIn under Yvonne Sharp. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'm Russ White. You can always find me here at the hedge at rule11.tech on Twitter. Oh, I don't know, wherever, LinkedIn, doesn't really matter. You can find me around. Thanks, Federico, for coming on. This is a really fascinating topic. You know, it's not very often that people look back at the past. We just tend to think of it as legacy and who cares. But, you know, this is actually really cool stuff. So, yeah, thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah. So um, for all the audience, thanks very much for listening. Uh, your attention is important to us. And, you know, we know it's a crazy world out there. And maybe this is your soothing 30 minutes out of your day to listen to the hedge and hang out and listen to us talk about crazy stuff. So uh, again, thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.